0: Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. My name is Lily Gorin, and today I'm hosting Emily Knockle, author of An Age of Risk, Politics and Economy in Early Modern Britain, published in late 2016, I believe, by Princeton University Press. This text interrogates the idea of risk and how this concept and the term itself moved into the discourse in political theory. Emily Knockel explores the work of four important political theorists who bring the concept into their work and thinking, specifically Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, David Hume, and Adam Smith. The opening query of the book, How Should We Cope With Risk?, sends the reader through Knockel's careful exploration of the concept itself, but more importantly, how the idea of risk and the capacity to mitigate this perilous position became a structural component within early modern British political theory. This theory connects to the developments around our shared understandings of time, probability and action, according to Knockhall. And I will let her explain a little bit more about that after she tells us a little bit about herself and how she came to this project. Hello, Emily.
1: Hello. Nice to be with you.
0: Thanks for joining us this morning.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk
0: about the book. So, tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came to this project.
1: Okay, well, I'm currently um, a political theorist on the faculty at the University of Toronto, and I divide my time between teaching undergraduates at the Mississauga campus and graduate students at the downtown St. George campus. And my primary interests are early modern political thought. British studies, and risk studies. And so this project um, is sort of emblematic of all three interests. And the way I came to this project, um, it was originally a dissertation project for me um, quite some time ago. And initially, I really had no intention of writing about the problem of risk. I was really interested in doing a project on trust. In fact, in early modern political thought, um, and especially how the problem of trust uh, is exemplified in social contract theory. So that was my initial plan to work on the project. And as I continued sort of exploring these topics and themes, um, it turns out that the thing that I was really interested in were was issues of vulnerability, uncertainty, and the difficult conditions of participating in relationships with the press. And eventually my interest turned almost entirely to these questions of vulnerability and uncertainty. And I figured out that what I was actually really interested in is how early modern thinkers formulated the problem of risk. And this pushed me sort of deeper into contract theory, but really beyond that, into issues of political economy. And so that's really how this project came to be. Um, Initially, I'd really planned for it to be strictly a 17th century project. But as I became more and more interested in political economy, I pushed forward in time a bit to work on 18th century political thought and political economy. So that's how the project came to be. It was initially meant to be something else, um, but as I dug a little bit deeper into my topic, Found that I was more interested in risk and uncertainty than I was in some of the other issues that I had initially planned to work on.
0: And and this idea of vulnerability, this idea of uncertainty, certain is is very much in the forefront of the sort of early modern thinkers like Hobbes and Locke. I know from my discussions with my students and reading them myself that the sort of concept of the contract is to mitigate this. And you explain this at the, in the introductory section of your book, as you go through the three components that you want to explore in, in the sort of early modern British political theory. Can you take us through those sort of areas that you lay out um, as your introductory thesis in the book? Sure.
1: Um, So the basic thesis of my book is that in early modern British political writing and writing in political economy, we can find over time the emergence of the idea of risk as an organizing principle or concept for understanding what is basically an unknown future. And I'm arguing that this is a shift from other earlier ways of confronting sort of the perennial problem of the unknown future, ideas like providence or fate or fortune, um, or even chance, a related concept. And so my argument is that across the 17th and 18th centuries in Britain, people start to think about the future as a place of risk. And what I mean by that is that people start to harness the power of probabilistic thinking about the future to hazard sort of well-informed guesses, if you will, about what the future might hold. And that probabilistic thinking becomes a tool that people try to use um, to predict the future, to control it a little bit more than they otherwise might have. and. That over time, we can see this idea of risk understood as future probabilities, as a way of organizing thinking about the future, as changing and restructuring ways we think about relationships of trust and authority and politics and political economy. And over time, I think, too, in sort of shaping people's orientation towards the future, um, from thinking of it as a place that can be approached with both hope and fear, to a place that can mostly be approached with fear, which was sort of an unexpected outcome of my research.
0: And, and I, I wanted to follow up on that, that concept, the idea of sort of understanding that fear. And, and also, as you note, the sort of probabilistic thinking, um, when you talk about risk, what, what do you mean by that? What did these thinkers mean by the understanding of risk?
1: That is a good question. So my part, my project is partly informed by sort of the emergence of risk as a, even a word that become sort of entrenched in the vocabulary available um, to English-speaking early moderns, And so as many researchers have shown, um, it seems like the word itself emerged as part of a maritime vocabulary um, for thinking about trade and seafaring expeditions. And so it emerged in a very particular context, and this is sort of the context of trade Um, Some people date it to around the 13th century in probably Italian or French, but then over time, it sort of spreads throughout the trading world in Europe. Some people date it earlier, but I think that probably the most common dating is around the 13th century. And then I think the word kind of sits for a while, but as probabilistic thinking begins to take hold as a way of thinking about what an uncertain future might hold... Um, we see sort of the conceptual apparatus forming around this idea of risk, and so it becomes more than just a specialized word used to think about maritime potential um, and the dangers of maritime trading and expeditions, and more of a sort of general-purpose way of thinking about how we might measure possible future outcomes, how we might predict. Um, or make informed probabilistic guesses about what the future might hold. And it becomes a way of thinking about the future in general, not as a place that is completely obscure to us, but as a place in which we can think a bit about what might happen and use the powers of human reasoning and clearing it um, to come up with some kind of probabilistic story about what the future might hold. Um, I'll also say that... um, I'm not thinking about at this stage in the project or in this stage of sort of the emergence of risk historically, I'm not thinking about um, probability as really harnessed to any kind of sophisticated computation
0: or... Not actuarial science at this point.
1: Not yet, right? And I'm not thinking about it as really rooted in any kind of mass data collection um, in the way that we might think of. Um, however, we can start to see, I think, in this period, sort of the beginning or the emergence of this kind of work. Like you're starting to see some sort of collection of data, particularly what we would call data, particularly financial data, um, data about death and mortality. These kinds of things are starting to become sort of objects of scrutiny and collection, and they will eventually turn into – What we think of as sort of statistics and probability. Um, But my work is as yet a little bit early for this kind of thinking. I'm mostly thinking about probability as um, the collection of human experience and then drawing on that experience about what has happened in the past to detect certain patterns um, that we can use
0: to tentatively predict the future. So, not big data yet?
1: Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. yet. (laughs) long-term story um, but it's still pretty early on um, for that kind of
0: and and so in terms of the sort of idea of, of risk as you say kind of understanding possibly some patterns in, in human conduct even um, you you specifically look at four thinkers in your book and you structure the book around the thinking um, Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, um, David Hume, and Adam Smith. Um, And you sort of also highlight, at least in parts of the book, the sort of move also towards an understanding of political economy. As part of the thinking. But before we get to the that question, I wanted you to talk a little bit about why you structured the book the way that you did, and why these four thinkers, what what in particular, Hobbes, Locke Hume, and Smith, what do they provide in terms of the understanding of this emerging concept of risk um, and probability th- probability, think, thinking Excuse me.
1: so initially I had planned on working in a different set of papers altogether um, I, had, I knew that I wanted it to be um, an English and British political thought project um, because I really became very interested in these kinds of questions as a reader and teacher of Hobbes um, so that was sort of how it started and I, I really planned to do a project that was deeply rooted in Contractual thinking and plan to do a project on Hobbes, Milton, and Locke um, with a slight coda, uh, incorporating some of the work of Bernard Mandeville as a way of showing a shift away from contractual thinking to other modes of explaining human sociability. And so that was the initial plan. Um, but with some encouragement, um, I turned to the work of Adam Smith because he really does think explicitly about risk. He uses the term a lot. um, And he thinks about it largely in terms of people venturing out into the political economy, both domestically and internationally. And so I turned to him. And then over time, Milton and Mandeville sort of dropped out of the project. And I came to realize that if I really wanted to contend with thinking about probability in politics and political economy that really sort of the great thinker I needed to be tangling with was David Hume. So um, the chapters were sort of written out of order initially. Um, and then Hume really ended up being, at least in my mind, the centerpiece of the book. And that changed sort of my writing of each of the chapters and changed the way I revised the project altogether. So the reason I'm point interested in them, the four of them, is that I think each of them brings something a little bit different and interesting to the table when we think about risk and probability and its emergence in this particular period and in this place. Um, I think certainly Hobbes is a bit early for conversations about probability and risk. Um, As readers of Hobbes know, he has very little patience um, for... Uncertainty. He's very sensitive, I think, to it as a major problem um, for political societies. And he is designing an architecture of the state that completely tries to sort of will away the problem of uncertainty. And so, one of the reasons I became very interested in writing about him is that I thought he was quite sensitive to the problem of uncertainty, but he is, as I say in the book, unwilling to live with risk, right? He approaches the future not through a probabilistic lens, um, but instead through a quest for certain demonstrable knowledge um, that will never change. And that structures how he thinks about the state. Um, It structures his approach to institutional design. But I'm interested in him as sort of a failure on that front. I don't think he really succeeds at willing uncertainty out of politics and designing it out, so to speak. And so I'm interested in him as sort of an agenda-setting thinker for the period, but also someone who shows sort of the fragility of approaching the future through to anything other than probabilistic thinking. Um, So he stayed in the project for that reason, even though I moved forward a bit in time. And then as for Locke, Hume, and Smith, I think all three of them are much more open to the idea that really human experience is all we have um, when it comes to proceeding into an unknown future and that we have to build sort of flexibility into our politics and flexibility into our approaches to political economy to cope with the unexpected and with changes as they come. And so the next three chapters look at different approaches to that particular problem and they show the emergence of probability as a I don't want to say a wholly reliable tool for approaching the future, but perhaps the best that we have, the best that we can do you know, when we're approaching the future. So that's why I picked those four. Um, I thought each of them helped me get some insight into the question of how we cope with risk and how we confront the future um, armed with very little other than experience and probabilistic knowledge
0: and and you you note that you had come <clears throat> into the project and you you're going to sort of think about this contractual thinking. So it within the book itself, there is some discussion obviously of contractual thinking um, as a means of dealing with the idea of risk. Um, can you explain a little bit about in particular the <clears throat> the four thinkers? on that question within the context of your thesis?
1: Hume and Smith um, are not proponents of the social contract model of political thought. Um, So I don't spend too much time with the two of them on this question, although I might have. I might have spent more time with them as critics of this particular model. Um, And with Hobbes and Locke, um, both of them think about a social covenant or compact or contract as a way of exiting the state of nature um, and building a society that can hopefully endure um, well into the future. Um, Somewhat interestingly, I ended up taking a somewhat different view on Hobbes and Locke than I had anticipated. Originally when I started researching and working on the project, I really thought that what I would be doing is comparing Hobbes and Locke on the problem of contract Um, how it's able to cope with or not cope with a future that is marked mostly by uncertainty and how it solves some of the problems of the state of nature as each of them defines it. But what I really ended up doing was focusing more on what happens after the social contract in both of their major texts, Leviathan for Hobbes and the Second Treatise of Government. And so I really spent quite a bit of time thinking about the authorization model um, of representation in Hobbes as a way of mitigating uncertainty as far as one possibly can and whether it succeeds or fails. And then thinking a little bit in Locke's work about the problems, sort of the dual and I think related problems of prerogatives and revolution as ways of, or as tools rather, I should say, that might be a better way of putting it, as tools um, that can be used in politics um, for confronting an unknown future. And so interestingly, I do give quite a bit of attention to contract, but I became much more interested to my own surprise about what happens after the moment of contract in Locke's politics and in Hobbes' politics in particular, because I think in both of their cases, that's where things become very strange and interesting, um, especially when it, you think about the future as a place of risk. Um, and I do argue that both of them introduce certain risks into politics by, partic- by choosing these particular ways of thinking about how to structure the politics. So um, you can still see some pretty strong trace amounts, I think, of, the problem of contract and the project. But as it wore on, I became interested in other things as well. Um, my own surprise. I think you never know where will go. And that was where I ended up.
0: And one of the things that you note and that I find interesting in part because I've also just recently reading another book that takes up the issue of time um, and the structuring of time that is sort of going on during this period in a way... That is making it much more standardized and changing our sort of concept of it, um, and and that also figures into your discussion with regard to you know sort of the role of vulnerability um, and sort of understanding uh, the our individual place in a world where, you know, there's the potential for risk, where there is vulnerability, um, where we're also being sort of moved into this industrialized, standardized, structured mechanism. Um, And I was just wondering about how you thought about those changes and shifts that these thinkers were also experiencing around them.
1: That's such a great question. I think... So I'll say as someone who's very interested in the problem of risk, time is something I'm kind of always thinking about in the back of my mind when I work on different projects. And so that does come through somewhat, I think, in this book. I would like to have brought it out even more strongly and I hope maybe down the road to think more explicitly about the theoretical connections between risk and time. Um, but, you know... The two are very closely related. I think when you're thinking about risk, you're always thinking about past, present, and future. And I think one of the sort of great things about the four thinkers I chose is that they, too, um, think in these terms. And I think probably the two that are strongest on this front are Hobbes and Hume, who think really carefully about what past time means to those of us who are living in the present, um, how we compile human experience, sometimes without even thinking about it, and cultivate practices of drawing out patterns from past time without even too much thought, as Hobbes says, just something we do as human. And we carry um, this information. And sometimes this baggage with us into the present and into the future. And so time is really, I think, a sort of fundamental theme of the project, uh, although it sort of runs below the surface.
0: Yeah, that was what I found, and I found that very interesting. Um, Time keeps popping up, apparently, in my readings, and so (laughs) I'm, I'm now paying more attention to it.
1: Me too, and there's a lot of really interesting work, I think, going on right now in, in, I think, social theory and IR theory about the problem of time, Um, I think there are lots of people who are now sort of working on the historical emergence of risk. And I think the folks that are working post-industrial revolution um, are really attuned to the phenomenon of clock time um, and labor time as important to... Conversations about how we structure our daily lives and how we even begin to think about what the future might look like. So I'm really interested in these things too. Um, and time is something I always wish I knew more about. So
0: <laughs> in my own life, you you did take me through and I said, "Oh, once again, we're thinking about time." And, and and as you said, it's sort of it's not the overt thesis of your book, obviously, but it is constantly sort of coming through. And I thought that was really fascinating. Um, but I wanted to ask you another question about Hume because you noted that Hume became the centerpiece of your project. Um, and I was curious as to what sort of shifted that moved Hume into the center of of this project in particular, as you say, dropping out other thinkers um, and and moving Hume and then and then Smith into the center of this project on vulnerability.
1: Well, I think the reason Hume ultimately became a bit of the centerpiece is as I continued working through different iterations of this project, the theme of probability became more and more important. And for each of the thinkers I choose, I try to look at the broadest range of their work possible. So, not just their political thinking, but also their work on political economy. And in all cases, um, as much of their work on theory of knowledge and epistemology as I can find. Because risk is really always a matter of knowledge, right? Um, that it, makes sense. Yeah. That makes so, sense. Of course. Uh, Hume, for me, um, really became the centerpiece because. In particular in the treatise, um, which I think for Hume himself was quite a disappointment, right? You know, he said that nobody really read it, they became much more interested in his later work, his essays, and other projects. Um, But the treatise is really the place where he works through this very elaborate and complicated theory of probability. Um, And while not everything he argues in that section holds, um, one of the things that I found really compelling about it is that he gives us a really great description of how it feels um, to reason probabilistically, what kinds of emotions it excites in us. Um, and that, to me, was really central to the project. One of the things that I wanted to think about was, you know, how is it that humans confront risk if it's a sort of inescapable problem that we all have to live with? And then how does that make us feel? Like, is, is it a cause for hope? Is it a cause for fear? And one of the things that I found really compelling about Ian's account is that he really thinks through these problems. He says, you know, we're armed with experience. We have to get on with living, even if we have uncertain knowledge and very little information about what the future holds. So we do the best we can based on experience and the kinds of probabilistic predictions of the future that we can call from experiences that we've already had. And what interests him is how this makes us feel. And what I quite like about Hume's account is that he ultimately comes to the conclusion that this makes us feel pretty terrible much of the time. Um, It makes us feel incredibly vulnerable and insecure, even if we can say with as much certainty as possible what will happen in the future. And even if the outcome that we're expecting is a positive one, it says even just the very process of thinking probabilistically about the future reminds us that we don't know what will happen. And it stirs up a sort of fundamental insecurity and fear in us. And so this is what we carry with us into the future. And this informs the kinds of decisions that we make. Um, it informs the kinds of political institutions and relationships that we seek out It informs the kinds of ways that we conduct business. And I just thought this was such an interesting insight. Um, and I don't know if it's something about my temperament or my own lived experience, but this struck me as true. And I thought, well, you know, this is a way of thinking about what comes before Hume and what comes after him. Um,
0: It makes him one of the first affect theorists.
1: Yeah. And I think, and a very early thinker of what we might call today anxiety, right? Uh, And so I found him incredibly interesting and compelling on this front, largely for his psychological portrayal of what it means to be a person who is living with one eye open towards the future. And then I became interested in how he tries to ameliorate this anxiety um, for his readers. Um, through practices of essay writing and information gathering and presentation of knowledge. And so I ended up thinking of Hume as sort of the center of the project, like as someone who takes up the questions that really interested me and who points sort of a way forward for the future and who doesn't really try to resolve the problem of it, um, but who is very clear that this is something we just have to live with. Um, who sets out certain tools and possibilities for proceeding into an unknown future, um, and who, with great sympathy, I think, portrays the experience of what it is like to live under these kinds of conditions. Um, so, <clears> to <throat> me, he's one of the great sort of modern thinkers of the problem with risk, who sort of sets the agenda and us towards a particular way. Of thinking about the future and one that I think sticks um, to a great degree. So that's sort of how he became the centerpiece of the project. But in the in the chronological time of the project, I came to class. Um, and so that.
0: And you said that, that you shifted around because of that.
1: I, he changed sort of the way I thought about Hobbes. I ended up with... Thinking of the two of them as kinds of brothers in arms um, when it came to this project of confronting an unknown future, even though they make very different recommendations and have very different accounts, I think they're both quite sensitive to how terrible it sometimes feels to confront an unknown future. And they have different ways of solving the problem, so to speak. I think Hobbes really wants to solve it, and Hume wants to encourage us to find ways to live with it. And then um, Hume's sort of carrying over of the moral psychology of living with risk into his account of political economy made me return to Locke and his own work on political economy, specifically money and interest, and think about that differently. And then so much of Smith's work is a taking up of the kinds of questions set by his friend Hume. And wrestling with them on his own terms and in his own way. So in some ways, I think he consumed the kind, the fulcrum of the project and changed the way I looked at the other chapters.
0: Well, it certainly is the way that you, you know, you set up the book and I thought it was interesting in that regard, um, coming into the into your book thinking, oh, I sort of know the way that this is gonna unfold. And then as you took me through, it's like, oh, this isn't unfolding at all in the way I thought it would happen. Um, which also sounds to me like how you came through the project yourself.
1: That's true. I mean, my initial plan, or what I thought I would find when I started this project, is I really thought I would be telling a story of change over time from the 17th to the 18th century. That the 17th century is a time of thinking about the future as a place of risk, understood as a threat to security, um, and a place of like profound loss. And that over time, we would see this attitude sort of take a backseat to a new way of thinking about the future as a place of hope and possibilities for freedom and profiteering, and that I would tell this sort of pleasant story about how a negative approach to the future eventually gave way to one that was a bit more optimistic and cheery. So I thought I would tell that particular story of change over time. But what I figured out was that that's not at all what happened (laughs) over time, and that in fact this dual approach to risk of the future as a place of profit and loss is entangled across both periods of time that one story never really yields the other. They just exist in different relationships. And so the story didn't work out at all the way I thought it would, um, which is interesting. I think, you know, when I began the project, I thought I had read enough of the source material um, and had dug deeply enough into it to know what kind of story I was going to be telling. But as the project wore on, I found that the story I ended up telling was not at all the one that I thought I would find.
0: There's not usually a twist in political theory, but you gave us a twist in the ending.
1: It was a twist for me too. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm glad of it. I feel like I learned a lot, but um, it was it was a bit of a surprise, um, and it changed my own thinking about my topic and the kinds of questions that interest me. So,
0: so then that leads me to my next question, which of course is, so what are you working on now? Where did this, you know, sort of twist in the plot at the end of the story we do.
1: So I had many leftover questions when I was done with the book, Um, things that I really wanted to think about, but it didn't quite, they didn't quite make their way into the narrative of the project. So Right now, I'm working on two projects. One is a little bit further along than the other. So one of, one of my new projects is a study, a book-length study of labor in the 18th century in Britain. Um, one of the pieces I was working on of simultaneous to this book, which I thought might end up being part of the book, is some of um, Bernard Mandeville's work on prostitution as a particularly suspect form of labor in the 18th century. And I really became interested in Mandeville also as a pretty profound thinker of risk. And one of the things that I thought he was particularly good at is thinking about sort of the social construction of risk, right? That risk is a matter of knowledge. It can also be structured or framed by social agreements or tacit social agreements among us about what constitutes a risk to our society. And so I became very interested in his work on prostitution as a way of uncovering the anxiety about labor in a commercial society in which forms of acceptable labor are changing and shifting over time and how a lot of the anxiety about living in a high-risk commercial society um, is channeled into public attitudes about prostitutes with particularly risky laborers. And Mandeville makes this sort of radical argument that their labor is not so different from other forms of labor in a commercial society. And so he asked the question of, you know, why? Why are we so interested in these particular women as workers um, when the kinds of activities they participate in are present all over society? And so that opened up a set of questions for me that I didn't really get to answer in the first book, which is about you know, risk as a matter, not just of probabilistic calculation, but of social perception. We saw that certain groups pose particular risks to society, and I'm interested in why we choose these people and what it really says about us. Um, So I'm working on a project now about different kinds of um, what I'm calling marginal laborers in the 18th century. People like the working and the non-working poor, prostitutes, migrants, um, and how discourses that frame these people as particularly risky uh, reveal certain anxieties about living in a changing commercial society. So that's one project. The other thing I'm really becoming interested in is the epidemiological side of risk, which I haven't thought about very much. Um,
0: Another plot twist.
1: Another plot twist. And so um, I'm sort of tentatively embarking on a project about plague narratives in the history of political thought. Um, and how they help us think about how communities confront risk, trauma, and disaster. And so the entry point for this project is another early modern thinker, Daniel Defoe, um, and his work on um, the Great Plague. And his novel, A Journal of the Plague Year, is for me one point of entry into thinking about this project. So I'm in the process of collecting sort of plague narratives in the history of political thought and reading them as ways of thinking about how communities cope with epi- epidemiological crises, um, how these become crises of knowledge and information, um, as a different way of thinking about how communities cope with risk. So that is in its pretty early stages, um, but I'm hoping that will take me into a different side of thinking about risk in the history of political thought and how communities...
0: Well, it also sounds like it's going to take you in the direction of literary presentations as well as, you know, sort of more expository um, writing.
1: I think so. And I'm interested, I'm very excited about that possibility. I'm also a bit nervous about it because it's a different kind of, it's a different genre of political thinking um but i'm excited about sort of reading these kinds of narratives and thinking about them as political texts too so we'll see if i can do it but i think um i think it'll be interesting so i'm still sort of squarely tangling with the problem of risk but hopefully a different avenue
0: well it sounds like you have two great projects when when the books are published will you come back on the new books network and talk to us about them
1: I will. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Um, It is my pleasure. Um, And my last question for you is, where can somebody purchase, besides the usual places, An Age of Risk, Politics and Economy in Early Modern Britain? And this is from Princeton University Press.
1: So as I was telling you earlier, I have actually not seen my book out in the wild um, (laughs) in person. But I have heard tale that it is at at some Barnes & Noble's. I have also um, heard a tale that it might be at the Seminary Co-op, if you live in the Chicago area, one of the great bookstores. Um, it's also been spotted in the economic section of independent bookstores in Berkeley, which I find really <laughs> interesting, and I bet economists would as well. Um, I think the, maybe the best non-Amazon um, or non-usual place to find it might be the Princeton University Press website.
0: Um, I'm sure that they have they have it front and center it, there it is so.
1: available, I think in hardcover and um, e-reader edition
0: e-reader yeah so thank you for joining today Emily it was great to talk to you about your new book
1: thank you Lily such a pleasure